Have you ever wondered why there are giants in the Bible? I know that I have certainly wondered. And in this week's episode of My Strange Bible, me and Alex are going to be talking about this idea that there are giants in the Bible. Alex, what the heck? What is going on? Giants. I have never seen a giant. I mean, I've seen some tall dudes, but I ain't never yeah, seen a giant. It depends on what you classify as giants, Steve. Um, now, you said that you've always wondered about giants. Maybe after tonight, they'll be a little bit less wondering, a little bit more knowing. Let me just throw that out there. Mm-hmm. Or they'll just be even more well, wondering. We'll have to find out where this takes us. Probably more wondering. I would imagine. Yes, which will lead to more and further episodes. I'm just about the same thing, but it'll all be well and good. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so let's dive straight into this. Again, my strange Bible, talking about the weird stuff, I could not think of anything much more weird Mm. than the fact that the Bible mentions giants. And the first time we meet these guys is not very long into the biblical text, into the biblical storyline. We find them... In Genesis chapter 6 is the first time that these guys are mentioned, but then they're also mentioned later on. So I think what I'd like to do is pull up the Bible. If you're watching this on YouTube, we're going to put the Bible on the screen just so you can follow along a little bit with us here. And if you're listening, we will also read it as well. Alex, would you want to go ahead and read just the first couple verses there of Genesis chapter 6, maybe through verse 4? Yeah, that looks good to me. All right. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wise for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind, who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. All right. So this chapter, and specifically this collection of verses, has long been a point of confusion for biblical studies and biblical scholars. It's like the first day you show up at seminary, like this is the question everybody's asking each other. Like, what do you think about Genesis chapter six? And the key word here, uh, there's there's a few different keywords, but really the key word for our discussion tonight is this idea of the Nephilim, okay? The Nephilim. And so you can see right here, it's a little bit small on the screen, but you can see the word I'm highlighting here. The first word that comes up when you just double click on that guy uh, in the Brown Driver Briggs anyway is giants, okay? Giants. Now, there is some debate around what the word actually means. We're not going to get that nerdy tonight, talking about the different ways that people hash that out. Safe, It's safe to say that the word Nephilim, though, is referring to giants. And if you study this word out all throughout Scripture, you find it in many different places. In fact, this, the text here specifically says that the giants were there in the land in those days and also afterward. And so it's no no surprise that we find evidence of giants elsewhere in the biblical text. But we might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So let's back up a little bit. The sons of God stuff. Now, if you've followed along the last few episodes, like I think what we need to talk about first is where the giants came from. Does that sound right to you, Alex? I think that is most appropriate. Might as well go where the story begins. 
Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. So if you follow, have followed along these past couple episodes, we've introduced you to something called the Divine Council Worldview. And if you're finding this podcast for the first time and you don't know what the heck we're talking about, go back to our last episode, which is called The Other Gods in the Bi- No, our, excuse me, our last episode was not that one. Our last episode is called The Logic of the Divine Council Worldview or The Logic of the DCW. Go back to that one and the one before that, the other gods in the Bible are real. And we talk about a few of the ideas there, one being this idea that the sons of God are angelic beings, if you will, or spiritual divine beings. And the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, where B'nai means sons and Elohim means God, So these are the sons of God, and everywhere that we have scriptural reference to them, it seems to be referring to divine beings, spiritual beings that are from another realm. And so what we appear to have, as crazy as it sounds, as strange as it sounds, here in Genesis 6 is the idea of these angelic beings, the sons of God, members of God's divine council, actually coming to earth and having babies with women, human females. Yeah. What in the world? That seems a little odd, a little bit epic fantasy style, something you'd see in a in a book like that. But that is what we read. And man, it's funny. The topic tonight is on giants, but just bringing up the topic of the sons of God in general leads to so many other rabbit trails that we could go down. But suffice to say that you just assume um, the divine council worldview for just saying if you disagree with us and let's just assume that is a thing we would expect them the sons of god spiritual beings whatever form they took and steve can get into this as you want or we can show it for another episode but um however whatever form they took and mated with um, humans on earth you would just assume that a spiritual being would probably produce offspring maybe slightly different um or maybe a little bit more powerful a little bit different in a way than if two humans mated so that's where it gets down to and it in that case, it does make sense that, and I know that some people can take Nephilim as giant, meaning it says later on in that segment that we read from the Bible that um, they were men of renown, the famous men of that time. And so maybe giant just means great, but um, that doesn't really coincide what we see later on in the Old Testament, especially when it references the men, these giants before and afterwards. That's exactly right. So the Bible does tend to be remarkably consistent. On these points. And so what definitely seems to make the most sense, and again, it's how Christians for many and and Jewish people for many years have interpreted these passages to understand that when the when the sons of God, these um, spiritual beings who seem to have fallen uh, from God's grace and and from or uh, perhaps from from God's ways, you could say they they fell and they decided that they were going to rebel against God and have things their way. They came down to earth. They found beautiful women, the daughters of men, seduced them, and had children with them. And you say, is that even possible? Apparently it's possible because this is what we're reading in the text. Now, you might also say, the text doesn't, it seems like you're going far beyond what the text says. There's there's some stuff here, but like you're, you seem to be reading a lot into this. So, 
There are two things that I would say about that, okay? Uh, first of all, it does make content uh, make sense in the larger context uh, of the Old Testament. Again, going back to the discussion of the sons of God being spiritual beings, okay? Once you have that framework and that backdrop and you're looking at this passage, it's really hard to come away with another interpretation. Over the years, there have been some who wanted to say that this was the line of Seth, that the sons of God meant it was the sons of of the godly line of Seth. The problem is that's completely made up. You don't actually have anywhere in the text that refers to the sons of Seth being in some godly line mm. over and against some other line. And you don't have anything in the text that refers to the daughters of men, like somehow those daughters would only be from another line that wasn't Seth's. But again, the text doesn't say that. And the natural result of whatever happens here in this passage that we're looking at is it brings on the flood. And of course, when you get to verse five, it says, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made them on earth. So how how do we get from, right, the godly sons of Seth marrying the worldly daughters of other tribes or other people and then like that making everyone on the whole earth evil in such a way that was so bad that we needed to destroy the world with the flood you see there's just some missing there's a, pieces there's there. a lot of missing parts there and yeah and it's it's a little bit i don't think it's wrong but you can get down your own sort of way of thinking and input to the text there what you want without it being correct it's fun to think about yes. and there's several different reasons you know what maybe god didn't we've discussed before how god gives all his creatures free choice maybe god didn't necessarily um maybe looked at it um that what they did was not very right in his eyes and so then he you know, didn't like them meeting together, or maybe it was some other way. Re- There's so many reasons that you get input in there, but the Bible clearly just does not say to us what that reason is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what's really interesting here is that there are indications in other texts that are extra biblical. And this gets into a, another whole big discussion that we need to briefly <laughs> rabbit trail down. Okay. There are other texts that are not the Bible, that seem to very directly and very clearly give background information to what's happening here, okay? I'm just going to mention um, two in a very broad fashion, okay? One of them is called the Book of Enoch, okay? Now, the Book of Enoch is not part of the Protestant canon of Scripture. However, it is mentioned and referred to in both, uh, I believe it's First Peter and then also in the book of Jude. So both Peter and Jude refer to information from the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch, or it's technically the first book of Enoch in this case, but it's usually just referred to as the book of Enoch, or or the book of the watchers is another way of putting it, uh, is specifically talking about this scene, okay? We get only four or five verses of what's going on, in Genesis 6, but the book of Enoch, which again is not, I don't take it as an inspired scripture, but people who were writing inspired scripture seem to Mm. quote from this book. They were aware of the writing of this book and what this book had to say, and in some areas of it at least believed what it said, okay, uh, to be true, then we can use the book of Enoch to fill in a lot of the details and the backdrop here. The book of Enoch goes into a lot more detail about this scene, okay? So that's just one thing. 
The second piece of information here is that there is a huge Mesopotamian backdrop to this text, okay? There's context in what are called essentially the Apkalu is their name, and these are culture heroes. Uh, in the Mesopotamian world, these guys are the good guys, right? They are coming down to earth. They are essentially hybridizing with human females. They are teaching the dark arts. They are teaching beautification. They are teaching just all kinds of things, witchcraft, uh, you name it, how to work with potions. Like this is the kind of stuff that's mentioned in, in their literature and the kind of stuff that like, as we go through in my strange Bible and dig into other Bible passages, you're going to see references and hyperlinks back to this stuff. And it's going to blow your mind, I think. So for now, in a sense, I'm asking you to trust me. You should look into this for yourself for sure. But like when you look at the Mesopotamian backdrop and as well as the book of Enoch, and then you mold those two things together with what we're reading in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, what we have is a I would dare say uncontestable. I mean, it's it's very hard to come away honestly with another view of this, in my opinion, uh, that what we have here is these fallen sons of God hybridizing with human females, and the result of this union is the first giant clan of what are called the Nephilim. I'll add to that, too. Not only do you have, even if you don't consider it canon, not only do you have these extra textual places where it references similar things, but when you do look elsewhere in the Bible where anytime it references the sons of God, it seems like anytime that subject comes up, you either have the option of kind of, I, I guess I'll say, making up something to fit that specific segment of the Bible, whether it's in Genesis, then again in Psalms, and trying to pick, oh, in this case it means this, in this case it means that, versus just saying, oh, sons of God actually just means what it says, the sons of God, and take it for what it is, because mm-hmm. that view fits every single time that it does come up in the Bible, rather than, if I say my son's name is Zeke, if I say my son Zeke, um, no matter what I say, my son Zeke, I'm referring to my son Zeke <laughs> every single time, and so it's like that. You don't have yeah. to read into it, and that's just kind of how how I view it. it. It fits in every scenario that you come across sons of God in the Bible. Oh, this is a great point. So this is called, I like to call this like a hypothesis of simplicity. Mm. Um, I don't think that's the official name for it, but there's an old medical analogy to this that goes like this. If you hear hoofbeats, think Mm -hmm. horse, not zebra. Okay. The reason for that is if you hear hoofbeats behind you, it is so much more likely that it's a horse than a zebra, Mm. I guess, depending on where you live in the world, but probably in most places in the world, you're more likely to have a horse come upon you than a zebra. Okay. And so when you think about it, simplicity, if you can explain, if you've got five different references to something in the Bible and you can uniquely explain away each of them into different categories. Okay. Like perhaps you could make that stretch, but if there's a simpler hypothesis where one answer fits in all of those places, that's more likely to be correct, okay? So that's kind of the idea that you're getting at, I think. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think, that, yeah, well said. And I think All right, cool. I think that's kind of the the bulk. It, when Steve and I start a conversation like this, when we're touching so many subjects, it's hard to pinpoint in the direction we want to go just because we want to give so much background into it. But I think with that background now fully, where we you know where we see the giant started and our view on that, um, we've approached the next question, which the question might seem tricky but the answer is quite simple at least in my view is that okay so there were giants before the flood and if you take that noah and his sons were the only people that survived the flood 
then how were there giants after the flood? Now, I've heard two different explanations for this. One of them, and I don't know what you hold to, Steve. One of them is that, well, after the flood, it just it happened again. Um, sons of God came down and made it with the daughters of with men. And that could be. Also, just, again, I think a simple way is just, we don't, the Bible doesn't tell us what kind of, who the women were that, that Noah's sons married, uh, but it's very likely that genetics were passed through them and eventually passed down to, you know, and eventually produced more giants at that time. So that's kind of the view that I hold to, but I'm not set in, you know, I'm not sticking my uh, stick in the sand about for that, but that's just my little opinion on it. No, that's good. See, there, I'm, I'm, I, I would say there are three views. Okay, uh, those two are, yep, there, the, those are two of the views that, uh, that somebody on the on board the ark was carrying bad genes. Um, and uh, <laughs> by the way, genes. I think that's I, or, <laughs> depending or, on well, how, uh, depending on how you look at it. That right, uh, that's right. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> I, I don't know. You, you know, I, I mean, I don't. You know, it wasn't Noah, right? I don't think mm. it was where in, in, in Noah's immediate family line, other than to say mm. perhaps one of the women that yep. his um, uh, one of his sons married, potentially. I would say that's an option. Um, another option is, um, like you said, it happened again mm. after the flood, which Satan is still doing uh, lots of activity in the world after the flood. There's demons after the flood. There, So, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's implausible. Absolutely. We don't have a specific mention of this happening again after the flood, but certainly even around the time of the Tower of Babel and stuff like that, it's very possible that this kind of event did happen again. Um, the um, the other option is, is an option that I do not hold to, but the other option would be that the flood is uh, local and mm. the flood did not actually destroy all of the Nephilim. Now, I'm not persuaded by that view for two reasons. Number one, I don't think the flood is low. I, I hold to a global flood view. That's number one. And number two, if the point of the flood was to knock out this batch of Nephilim, then, and God didn't send a flood adequate to that task, then what's with that? Especially since the language used in the flood account speaks to the destruction of all life on earth, save those that were on the ark with, with Noah. And and so it is it does kind of an odd thing if if the very flood that was sent in order to destroy these people did not end up destroying them. There's another reason why I don't think that logic holds water, no pun intended. You know, so um why I, I don't think that that holds water. It's because, and we're not going to get all into this today, this is a topic for another time, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, demons that we find like in the New Testament were basically the departed spirits of the dead Nephilim giants that were killed during the flood. Okay, we have ancient Near Eastern documents from the Second Temple period, or for you Protestants, the intertestamental period. Sometimes we call it the 400 silent years. We can go through all the names, whatever you want to call it. We have documents from that period that, that sort of give indication that they believed that demons were, you know, the departed spirits of the dead Nephilim that were killed during the flood. So Nephilim being killed during the flood was like a huge theme. So I kind of doubt that the local flood explanation works. Okay. Now, something interesting is one little word in the text. So let me just pull the Bible back up for just a, uh, just a moment here. And so we have this right here. The Nephilim were on the earth, both in those days and afterwards, when... The sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. 
Okay, this word when right here can be more plausibly translated as whenever. Okay, uh, there are a lot of um, Hebrew scholars who take that position that this word should be translated whenever. So in that case, it would read something like the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward, whenever the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. So that language definitely leaves open the possibility that uh, it simply just happened twice. An event like this happened twice, and that's how the Nephilim <clears throat> survived the flood. Okay, now... Uh, one thing I think, Alex, we want to for sure hit on here is that, yeah, it'd be nice to really explain the how, mm -hmm. but more importantly <clears throat> is the what. And the fact is that for hundreds of years after the flood, the giants are a problem for God's people. Mm. Yeah. And, yep. It, it, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of what here. And actually I, I take a, there's a couple of important factors here, and one of them I think that isn't to be overlooked. I've I brought it up a lot. I hope I'm not repeating myself, but um, just the free will that God gives to um, spiritual beings and mm. physical beings as well, um, interacting with with each other. But yeah, absolutely, Steve. Go on with that point because I had a thought there. I'll try to get it back, but keep going with that. Yeah, no problem. Right. So the like it, it's odd that as we look at, at the children of Israel throughout the Bible. Um, at least throughout the time of Joshua and actually even into the reign of David, right? The last direct mention of giants really that we get in the Bible is uh, David and his dealings with Goliath. And we also find in the text that Goliath had a brother. And so these giants from the Philistines, from, from the area of, I believe it's Gath. And so very interesting that we have this battle set up between uh, the Bible and, and the giants, so or between Israel and the giants. So um, in the conquests of Joshua, for example, you'll notice a few things there. So whenever they go, the Israelites go to spy out the land initially, what keeps them from doing it? Well, they send the spies, and the spies come back and say, there's Nephilim in the land, and we are like grasshoppers in their sight, Right. Those are the, that's the Nephilim giants, okay? Same characters, all right? Now, there are some other known giant clans in the Bible. The Rephaim, the Anakim, the Zanzumim, and the Nephilim. Uh, I think those are the, I think those, those are the only the four. There ones. might be another one, yeah. right? Yep, those are the main ones. And these are in different <laughs> contexts referred to. And these are giant clans that the children of Israel are fighting. And what you'll notice is that any time you see a reference, or at least most of the time when you see a reference to, um, especially in Joshua, the complete and utter eradication of a people group, these giant clans are the ones that have the targets on their back. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the reason why Israel is in this war against the giants is that they are still essentially fighting off the remains of these this initial uh, Nephilim event, this initial encounter that happened in Genesis 6. Yes, we know that God sent a flood to destroy them. Guess what? Humanity flourished on earth again got together, said, we're going to build the tower. He said, we ain't going to have that. 
So God disinherits the nations, and we covered that at length in a different episode, disinherits the nations, scatters the people at the Tower of Babel, and takes on his own portion in the people of Israel, okay? But the fight's not over because, again, for whatever reason, maybe it had something to do with the dispersal of Babel and there was another event that it didn't go all into or whatever. The giant, the remains of the giant clans are still around. And what you find is that Israel is tasked with eliminating the remainder of those giant clans all throughout the first part of the Hebrew Bible. And again, even David fighting Goliath is that last mention that we see. So a very good portion, a very big portion of the Old Testament is, uh, again, dealing with this war uh, between the Israelites and then these giant clans, but then also not just the giant clans, so not just the offspring, right? The giants were just the mm. offspring yeah. in these encounters that the Bible mentions, right? There's still the matter of the sons of God, right? That the sons of God themselves, who, right, the giants were the offspring, but then you got the sons of God who actually went into the daughters of men and others. See, those were not, they were not destroyed in the flood, okay? The sons of God, some of them were fallen, some of them were given to rule over the, and maybe that's it. See, now that I'm thinking, I'm talking, I'm just thinking out loud, you know, the sons of God in, at the Tower of Babel scene, that's where the allotment happened, right? Where Yahweh give uh, to the sons of God their appointment. Again, that's Deuteronomy 32. You can go read all about that. And he takes for his portion, the people of Israel. I wonder if it was right at that time, at the Tower of, of Babel, and shortly thereafter, when the sons of God were given control of these nations, and as Psalm 82 points out, they had become corrupt and they had started accepting worship for themselves, etc. Why wouldn't they have then taken more daughters of men from whom they chose mm -hmm. at that point? And so that's where even more of those giant clans were created, I'm sure, at that point after the flood. That's actually a really reasonable hypothesis, I think. So the giants are a big problem. The sons of God are a big problem. And of course, spoiler alert, this is why Jesus eventually had to come. But like a lot of the Old Testament is Israel dealing with the aftermath of Genesis 6. Crazy. Yeah. And a big, let's just say you're listening to this and you see where our logic is going. But in the end, you're just saying, okay, yeah, but I just still don't. I still just don't really see that actually happening. One of the things that the Bible does, Steve and I are going to have a episode about this, and Steve, you really touched on it here without actually just explicitly saying it, but the Bible deals so much in themes. So even if you're looking at this and you say, hey, like it, it's a little weird, you can it is very possible to at least look at these passages. And maybe you do say that a lot of it is instead of explicitly showing us actual history, it's maybe on certain topics and you know the struggle with Israel and others. But you see the giants before the flood, kind of the culmination that brings about the flood, whatever you believe about how the flood happened and all that. Then post-flood, you see the struggle like what Steve was just saying with the Israelites and on them. And that struggle lasts a while. And it just keeps getting brought up and it's peppered in there quite often. And then back to what you said about and again, you don't necessarily have to believe this, but just from other writings from during that time where people then believed, or at least a lot of them believed, that the the, ne the Nephilim that died did become the demons that you see in the New Testament, that Jesus, I wouldn't mm -hmm. necessarily struggled against, Jesus has all power, but you get what I say with that. So throughout the whole Bible, even if you don't believe all that stuff in actuality, you can, it is very possible to at least appreciate the thematic elements there that the Bible shows. And 
I think that'll be a really fun episode that Steve and I eventually do just on how how the Bible is like is a big theme. There's so many themes that go through it. Um, so that's definitely yeah. a really cool aspect to look at it. I think. No, I agree, and that leads me to another thought. Something that's really interesting as as crazy as everything that we've just been talking about might sound. Think about the alternative. The alternative is that you have to believe if you're a biblical Christian, right? You're and you're looking at the Bible and you take the Bible for what it says. You have to believe in the reality of giants. That's not a question. The Bible talks about them. Mm. Okay. Now, how tall were they? I don't know. Like, there are lots of stuff that we can get into. There's, a, again, a great book on this is called Fallen by Tim Chafee. Please read it. He deals with giants a lot. He talks about the normal sort of size that these giants would have probably been, probably somewhere eight, nine, ten feet, something like that. Probably more like eight, I think. The reality of giants is not contested in scripture. Again, Nephilim, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. That's why we're not going to take the land. Like, like the spies in Joshua, like they. Mm-hmm. Like that was that, okay? That's objectively true. It's also objectively true that these giant clans were the target of the conquests, mm, okay? Yeah. You could look at them, and I, there's a passage. I want to say it's in Joshua. It's either 17 or 24. I should have had it pulled up, but I didn't think to. Uh, but there's a passage that literally explicitly summarizes the conquests of Joshua, and it specifically <laughs> mentions these giant clans. <clears throat> it doesn't get any more perfect. And so... The question must be, why? Right. So we're trying to go to that why. Mm. If it's weird, if it's strange, it's an, it's important, right? So why? It's because of this original rebellion. Yeah. The explanation that the Bible gives is the Genesis 6 explanation about the hybridization of these sons of God, these spiritual beings, and the daughters of mankind. That's where the explanation comes from. And again, it's even stranger than the reality to try to take all of these passages where, again, we do have extra biblical material that this same passage, Genesis 6, is directly linked up to and very tightly linked up to and to try to then just explain that as some other random occurrence about the sons of God being the godly line of Seth or something. Like, those explanations just don't work. To me, it's a lot tidier when you just look at that reality as the origin of the giants. At least now you have an explanation in the biblical world for these giant clans coming up and why it's so important that Israel was tasked to eradicate them. It also gives you a theodicy that I'm quite persuaded by. Some of the sometimes the question is asked, how could God really command um, the children of Israel, Joshua and the armies, to like eradicate the men, women, and children in certain groups, okay? And there's a word behind this called harem, which is to devote to destruction. Uh, for one thing, they didn't do their job. So some of the giant clans survived, like Goliath and his brothers survived because Israel actually did not finish the job like they were supposed to during the conquests of Canaan, and some of the other tribes survived, and we see that very clearly in the text. But the ones that they were supposed to do that to, again, are linked directly to these giant clans, and that makes sense if the sin of the watchers in Genesis 6 was the original backdrop to this. If you really want to go down the nerd path on on that route of things, again, two books. I've already recommended one, Fallen by Tim Chafee, okay? And the second one is another Michael Heiser book. It's called Reversing Herman. The subtitle is The Sin of the Watchers and the Forgotten Mission of Jesus. That will go a lot more in depth into this particular piece of it, the backdrop behind uh, Genesis 6. And in my opinion... I don't see a way to come away reading those two books and come away from them still holding to any other belief other than this spiritual interpretation of Genesis 6. The other interpretations just don't work to me. So I hope that made sense. Like, 
the reality of giants is not what we're questioning here. Like right. the Bible, the, the Bible says that there were giants there, but how do you explain them? This is the most sensible explanation that I have heard. And I think this is anecdotal for sure, but reading through the Bible all the way up to even a few years ago, it made it seem, I guess, like fake in a way, having to explain away all of these passages that I can that I you come across and you just say, okay, the giants here are actually this. And yeah, they're giants here. And then maybe you don't even think about it. You just kind of read past it. And it really just put a, and it belittled what we say that we believe about the Bible. That's the inspired word of God. And having something like this being brought to light where it actually makes sense consistently across the board, at least in my opinion, just makes the Bible seem that much more important and real, cohesive, and actually inspired um, just because of how well it fits together. Again, that's a very much an anecdotal piece of evidence just from my kind of personal coming to viewing all of this. Now, Steve, the most important question of the night how come we don't see any remains of these giants? There's no fossils. There's no skeletons. So what's yep. the deal, Steve? Yep. This is a <clears throat> very good question and um, important, too, because over the years, there actually have been lots of fabrications, right? There have been lots. I mean, you'll see on the Internet every now and then these things pop up, mm-hmm. these articles about these giants that have been found. Yeah. That I can tell none of this has ever been validated by any kind of professional who would say, yep, these are actual giant remains that we have found. In fact, if anything, what we have from the ancient world are people who are shorter Mm. and who live very small lifespans, which seems completely contradictory to giants and people living 900 years old. So what's with all that? We'll save the age debate for mm, another time. That sounds good. But let's just talk about let's just talk about giants and fossils. <clears throat> Did you know the number is contested? It's somewhere between ninety-five and ninety-nine percent. Ironically, a creation source I found said ninety-five, and a secular source I found <laughs> said ninety-nine. Even though it would be more advantageous for the creationist if the ninety-nine were true. So anyway, that's just a little fun fact I'm throwing out there. Ninety-five to ninety-nine percent, somewhere in there, are of fossils that we currently have. Our marine life most of which are invertebrates. Mm. So I, I would say the ninety, the, the 95% number <clears throat> is probably true if we're talking about marine invertebrates. Mm-hmm. The 99 number is probably true if we're talking about marine life in general. Yeah. Okay. Think about what that means. And, and the history of life, and again, there's going to be different differences of opinion on how old the history of life is. But regardless of how you slice it in the history of life, 95 to 99% of fossils are marine creatures. So we have just a very small handful of fossils. And by the way, why is that? Well, it's because fossilization Mm. is a process that happens due to rapid deposition of these fossils, usually in sedimentary rock, okay, Mm. via water and volcanism and other things like that, okay? So like this notion of like, where are all the human fossils? And like, why don't we find human fossils with dinosaur fossils? If something like young earth creationism is true, why don't we have giant fossils? We barely have human fossils of any kind at all. It's very, Mm -hmm. very scarce. So frankly, the reason that we don't have evidence from fossils for giants is I wouldn't expect to see evidence from fossils for giants. Finding one would literally be like finding a needle in a haystack because that's just not like something that we would expect to find these creatures would be would be scavenged when they were think about it, when something dies right it's in the ground or whatever it it 
gets scavenged by people. Yeah. Like it, it decays naturally. <clears throat> it's in the ground. So we wouldn't necessarily expect to find these. It would be like trying to find a needle in a haystack. That's the simple explanation for it. But I believe they existed. I believe they walked the earth. And um, I don't think we need to have evidence from fossils uh, to validate what these people were saying. <coughs> and Because um, if that was the, the standard for historicity, we'd be in trouble. And two points. It, the Bible never at least I don't think it does. You can correct me on this, Steve. It never numbers how many giants there were. So we don't know if there were 100. There could have just been 100. There could have been 10,000. There could have been 10. But like before, there like could have been 10. You had no, we have no idea how much there were. So with that in mind of how little, just human fossils and things that we have related to that, if you have just a fraction of a fraction of percent of all humans that live that were, you know, there's just call it, how often are those going to pop up? And yeah. the second point too is, it's not again the bible doesn't explicitly say how tall every single giant was but and you said there was a little bit of debate to this but like goliath is typically said to be like what nine nine and a half feet or something like that and again um, there's something debate like on that it. yeah it's not that far-fetched like people like the no. thing look at people today like you have the world's tallest man who's like i don't know eight four or eight six or something that's tall people stare at him and gawk at him and that's tall but extend that a foot or so and you have the giants that we see there. And even if they're a little bit further, where it's very well within the realm of possibility. Even if you knock out all of the sons of God and then and the mating between, if you just take all that out, just normal people, um, who's to say there's not some sort of gene in the line that just produces really tall people, really big people. Anyway, just two points there that just make it seem yeah. even more normal. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a good point. I'll just put it this way. Like, I would rather, the odds are better, I think, of like winning the lottery ticket than actually finding yeah. a giant fossil. So I'll go buy a lottery ticket before I'm going for the uh, for the odds of that. Not because I don't think they existed, but because of all the things you mentioned. You made some great points. We don't know how many there were. And again, it's very unlikely that we would actually stumble across one. Even if we did, we have very little from the ancient world. It's like there's some people who complain about, we don't have more external <coughs> evidence from the Bible for Jesus. And we actually have quite a bit, yeah. quite a bit from the ancient world. And like Greg Kokel put it one time, something like this. The question isn't, why don't we have more stuff from outside the Bible? The question is, why do we have what we actually do <laughs> yeah, have at all right. about a random obscure carpenter man who lived in the middle of nowhere at a virtually obscure time in history and all of this? Like when all the stuff that was getting written down was about the royals and like mm -hmm. the Caesars and the Herod and, and the kings and rulers of that day, that we have what we do have about this obscure carpenter living in the middle of nowhere a couple thousand years ago is absolutely miraculous. So I can look at it in the same sort of way. I think that'll be, I'm going to drop that down. That's a good for another time the evidence that we see of it like if you look at today's world obviously the evidence that we have doesn't seem like a lot because we have cameras today and videos but if you want to talk about sure. what type of evidence we would expect to find about somewhere 2,000 years ago we have so much more than what you would 100%. expect to find but see this was a really fun discussion our 10 to 15 minute plan podcast turned into over 40 minutes there so that's just how does. we roll but this is a great mm -hmm. great discussion another fun one and <clears throat> just <clears throat> excuse me whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, I guess I'm coming to the Christians here, but all this stuff doesn't matter in the end with your relationship with Christ. We just hope that you have a relationship right. with Christ. And this is fun stuff that we talk about. And obviously there's mm -hmm. a level of seriousness with this. Like it, this fits within Steve's and my worldview and how it interacts with Jesus and just the story of the universe and everything. But we just hope that you, you know, you follow God and love Jesus and that's all that matters in the end.
Amen. Yeah. There's a, and we're going to do a topic on this in the future, but one of the comments that we've received since we started posting these videos is talking about how this stuff is a distraction. Mm. And I... Uh, again, spoiler alert, I don't think it's a distraction. I think it actually gets us into a closer relationship with the Lord and a closer relationship with God's plan for humanity. So look, if you're in that boat with us, you're in that camp (laughs) with us, please share this podcast with others, Mm -hmm. subscribe to it, you know, tell your friends and let's bring more people on on the journey. Dig into the strange stuff. Absolutely. Looking forward to next size, Steve. Thank, Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Alex.